On this episode of Case Confirmed, we're lucky to have Dr. Maya Nadambali as our guest. She's a research assistant professor in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Tufts University, and she is part of the core faculty at Tufts Center for Integrated Management of Antimicrobial Resistance. She holds a Bachelor's in Science in Environmental Sciences from McGill University in Canada, as well as an MS and PhD in Environmental Sciences and Engineering from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Maya uses genomic and epidemiological approaches to understand how exposures to food, animals, and the environment can affect human colonization and infection with antibiotic-resistant bacteria. She's previously led research in Cambodia, and she's starting a new project in Peru. Thank you, Maya, for being a guest epidemiologist on Case Confirmed. I'm really excited to have you here to talk about a really important public health issue, antibiotic resistance. Why do you think people in our audience should care about antibiotic resistance as a public health issue? I mean, what could happen in our future if we avoid thinking about this growing problem? So uh, antibiotic resistance started gaining traction as this really uh, important public health issue, crisis actually, in the last few years. And I think that has to do with the fact that there was this report released in the UK um, kind of conducted by economists, and they projected that if we do nothing about antibiotic resistance right now, by 2050, we can expect that there will be about 10 million deaths per year due to antibiotic resistant infections with um, this sort of massive economic cost associated with that as well. So that started grabbing people's attentions, especially um, global health agencies like the WHO, for example. Um, And that those statistics are really kind of thrown around a lot. But I think how antibiotic resistance sort of affects the everyday American hasn't necessarily been translated as well. So to give you some examples of you know common infections that become could become a lot more difficult to treat as antibiotic resistance becomes more and more common, um, urinary tract infections, uh, STDs, staph infections, and post-surgical infections could all become uh, a lot more difficult to treat. Your doctor would prescribe antibiotics, and you would expect that those antibiotics would kill the bacteria that are causing your infection. And maybe you're going to experience some minor side effects from the antibiotic, but you can expect to be infection-free in a couple of days. As bacteria become more and more resistant, uh, what can happen is you might take those antibiotics your doctor prescribes, but it's not going to kill the bacteria. Actually, the bacteria are going to multiply because it just you know mm-hmm. has more time to become a more serious infection. And so your doctor is going to have to prescribe a stronger antibiotic. And so these stronger antibiotics, um, while they might be effective against your infection, they're usually more expensive, uh, which is a problem, you know, here in the U.S. where a lot of people don't have health insurance necessarily. Um, they can have much stronger side effects. So some of the last resort antibiotics that we talk a lot about in the media, like colistin, those can cause kidney failure. Um, that is very serious. Yeah, it is serious. And, you know, you might have these serious side effects and pay a lot of money. And in the end, the antibiotic might not even be effective against your infection. And so, like, we talk about a scenario where, you know, bacterial infections aren't, we can't treat them with any kind of antibiotics. And that's like certainly a worst case scenario that is happening in a lot of places in the world. But kind of those intermediate steps on the way to that those are pretty problematic too. And so that's what we're trying to avoid. 
So basically, it's about making it so that patients don't have to take stronger medications with worse side effects, as well as preventing the odds that they might not even be able to have anything at all that could treat them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's a very important, um, very important thing to think about. So what types of infections do you think would be the first or most problematic ones in terms of antibiotic resistance? Huh? Well, that's kind of, it kind of depends on where you are in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. Certainly in many parts of the world, um, any sort of surgery in a hospital, um, you're at a pretty serious risk of getting a resistant infection. I think the U.S. has a higher rate of um, resistance among surgical surgical infections than potentially a lot of European countries. It it really depends. It depends on where you are in the world um, in terms of what antibiotics you have access to, what hospital infection control is like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Great. Okay. I think in one of our earlier conversations, um, you mentioned that UTIs are one of the types of infections that you think might have struggles with antibiotic resistance. And that really hit home for me because I think it's such a common problem and so relatable for mm-hmm. a lot of people as a very concrete example of how antibiotic resistance can affect their lives in the coming years or decades. Right. So you consider that to be one of the concerns. And I think you also mentioned at one point, like post-surgical infections might be something we can't treat. So yeah, post-surgical infections are um, certainly a current concern. Um, UTIs, fluoroquinolone resistant UTIs, for example, are, those have become really common all over the world um, in the last 10 years. Um, And STDs. Interesting. Yeah. That's also something we don't think about. Yeah. And I I think we don't think about it because we, we lived historically, you know, in this time period where compared to the past, we had so many new weapons against infectious diseases Mm -hmm. that I think there is this sort of complacency that developed over that. And maybe we weren't, I think historically, I mean, pandemics and plagues ravaged people for so long that it was always a serious problem. And then we managed to innovate in certain ways. But I mean, we're, we're not going to outsmart all the pathogens (laughs) of the world. (laughs) Yeah. And it's kind of like, it's a, well, as you know, there's a, it's it's definitely a multi-pronged issue. I mean, on one hand, um, we have stopped investing money or pharmaceutical companies, I should say, should st- have stopped investing money in developing new drugs because of course, you know, investing money in drugs that treat chronic conditions are much bigger money makers. Exactly. Um, so the drug manufacturing pipeline has really dried up, but there's a lot of efforts now to kind of restart that process. Right. In addition, antibiotics have really been used as a band-aid in many parts of the world is how I kind of put it. So instead of you know, investing in uh, clean water and access to sanitation, people have just used antibiotics as a way to treat bacterial infections without kind of trying to invest in in interventions or measures that are going to reduce the prevalence of bacterial infections to begin with. And so that's really catching up with us um, all over the world. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, just sort of what environmental factors or what, you know, social factors are leading to high incidence of infections in the first place. Mm-hmm. 
and instead of just, you know, throwing antibiotics at the problem. So that's really important. The other thing is your journey and how you started to become passionate about this topic. Sure. So it's a, it's a pretty long story. So, so my background is in environmental science, actually. And I was, I started studying environmental science because I was interested in how pollutants or, or how we interact with our environment can impact human health. So I decided to switch to public health for uh, my graduate studies because I was really interested in these interactions between environment and health. And I did my graduate work in North Carolina, and I happened to join a lab that was studying environmental pollution related to animal farms. And they were doing uh, sampling of rivers and streams in eastern North Carolina, which is where a lot of um, pig farms in the state are really clustered. And all the pig farms are really clustered in the southeastern part of the state. Um, and they, they had recovered bacteria from these rivers that they were thinking was multidrug resistant staph aureus. Um, Mm-hmm. And so, you know, their first their first question was, why would there be multi-drug resistant staff in water by pig farms? And so I just kind of happened to join the department at that period of time and join the lab. And I was really interested in this question, of course. And so at the time that they were doing this environmental sampling, there were these reports coming out of Europe of a new strain of methicillin-resistant staph, MRSA. And so um, methicillin-resistant staph um, had been around for uh, a long time. Um, initially, MRSA were kind of hospital-acquired infections. If you went into the hospital for a surgery, you were at risk of acquiring a MRSA infection afterwards. Then in the 80s and 90s, it became more of a community-associated infection. So sports or uh, working out in a gym, those could be potential risk factors for acquiring this type of drug-resistant staph infection. But there Mm -hmm. were now reports in Europe that actually pig farming was a risk factor for exposure to these bacteria. And what they were realizing, these methicillin-resistant staph aureus bacteria had been selected for in pigs. And so, you know, I... Was I didn't know anything about this field, and what really struck me was um, learning that you know the hypothesis for why this has happened is because of the massive amount of antibiotics that are used to grow pigs, not just in Europe but in the United States and all over the world. So in the U.S., eighty percent of all antibiotics that are sold in the U.S. each year are actually sold for use in animals and not for use in humans. And we use antibiotics to treat diseases in pigs, just like we use antibiotics to treat diseases in us. But we also use Mm -hmm. them to prevent diseases. And also, I mean, up until recently, we used antibiotics just to promote growth. So it turns out if you give pigs a very small dose of antibiotics every day through their feed Mm -hmm. or through their water, they're able to gain weight more quickly which means you can slaughter them more quickly, which means you can bring in a new herd faster. You can increase profits marginally that way. But all of this antibiotic use has potential public health consequences. And what they were realizing in Europe was, well, one of these public health consequences is this emergence of this new drug-resistant staph strain that can 
spread from pigs to humans. <laughs> and that was one of the and that was one of the questions people had initially, right? Was whether antibiotic use in non-human animals actually impacted resistant strains in humans. And what you what you're alluding to is that it does. It does. And so, I mean, a lot of work has been done since then. And, you know, we did a lot of work in North Carolina and what we found here and what they found in Europe is that it's specifically people who are working with pigs are exposed to these bacteria. So, you know, people who are working on farms as well as their household members in North Carolina, we found some evidence that people who are just living in communities because these pig farms are so concentrated, um, people just living in these communities might be exposed to these bacteria as well. But, you know, in the U.S., we have pretty strong public health protections. So while I personally think it's quite alarming that, you know, farmers and their household members are at risk of exposure to drug-resistant bacteria, the fact of the matter is, is that in general, um, broadly in the U.S., you know, consumers or people who eat meat or shop at supermarkets, they're not necessarily at risk of acquiring these bacteria. But yeah, so I think we have demonstrated, and not just in this case, drug-resistant salmonella, for example, too. There, there are multiple examples of drug resistance being selected for in animals and then those bacteria causing infections in humans. So this is a particularly big problem if it's associated with um, animal agriculture and farming because, as you've noted in a lot of your research, um, it's true that in a lot of developing nations, meat consumption is rising. Yeah, absolutely. So, so um, yeah, so after my, I did this, this work in North Carolina, um, we've talked before about how I, I went to France to do my postdoctoral work. And mm-hmm. I joined this study, it's called the Birdie Program that was operating out of uh, Institut Pasteur in Paris. And they had um, kind of three ongoing cohorts in Cambodia, in Senegal, and Madagascar, so low-income countries. And they were interested in um, the burden of antibiotic-resistant infections among really young children in these countries. So they were recruiting pregnant women and kind of following their children for the first year or two of life to understand how frequently they're being exposed to resistant bacteria and um, infections. And, you know, as we mentioned earlier, um, there's concerns that the burden of antibiotic resistance is a lot higher in these settings because bacterial diseases are much more common and antibiotics have been used as a Band-Aid for a very long time in these settings. And so I joined this project and meaning that in Cambodia, the woman that they were recruiting for this study, um, a really high proportion of them were colonized with something called ESBL-producing E. coli. So These are E. coli strains, and E. coli are found in all mammals and humans and animals. Um, But these strains of E. coli produce a protein called ESBL, which makes them Mm -hmm. resistant to um, several classes of antibiotics. So these, these types of resistant bacteria are pretty concerning. And, you know, in the Paris area, maybe like five or six percent of people have these bacteria in their gut, but they were finding, you know, well over 60% of healthy women, healthy women living in Cambodia were colonized with these strains. And so, you know, kind of the first reaction was, oh, well, this must have to do with what we talked about with high antibiotic use in the community. But my reaction after doing my work in North Carolina was, well, you know, maybe it also has to do with antibiotic use in animals and spillover from animal production 
to the community. And the reason I was thinking this might be happening is because animal production is really increasing in Southeast Asia, and not just Southeast Asia, all over the world, India, um, some countries in South America, because the demand for meat is increasing. Countries are developing, middle classes are expanding, people associate, you know, the Mm -hmm. ability to eat more meat during the week as a sign of wealth. And so, yeah, and so to meet this kind of, I'm sorry, no pun intended, to uh, livestock farming is really increasing. And in particular, there's this proliferation of the same types of farming systems we were studying in North Carolina, um, meaning like these intensive operations where a lot of animals are raised in small spaces and antibiotics are used as a way to keep disease down. Um, and But the problem is, you know, we've talked about how antibiotics are um, potentially, you know, really overused in these settings in humans. Well, it's, it's the same case mm-hmm. in animals. So these, these farms are increasing and livestock production is increasing. But for the most part, at least at the time that I was doing, you know, my research, um, antibiotic use is not really regulated in animals. People aren't sure what antibiotics are being used. They're not sure. Yeah, they're not oh, sure wow. how much is being used. Um, there's no monitoring to make sure that people are adhering to specific withdrawal times. So, for example, in the U.S., like if you treat a sick pig with a specific antibiotic, you have to wait a certain amount of time before you then slaughter that pig because you want to make sure there's no residues mm-hmm. in the meat. I was just going to ask about that because I... I was wondering, you know, given all these antibiotics being used, aren't people worried about the residue? Yeah, as there's well? no monitoring that's going on. I mean, I think people are mm-hmm. worried about it, but the infrastructure is not there to do surveillance. And people are raising livestock as a way to generate income. And a lot of times the antibiotics are in the feed itself. So they're buying feed from, you know, companies um, that feedback the writing on it might not be in the language that they speak or write. It might not Mm -hmm. list the antibiotics that are in the feed. Um, They just know that that feed is really is working well to make their animals grow faster. Um, And so that's why they use it, but they have, you know, no knowledge about how they should be restricting that feed or what the potential health consequences are of using that feed. So yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's sort of a situation where you have unregulated, antibiotic use in humans. And now we're also having that in animals. And again, bacterial diseases are quite high in a lot of these countries because of um, limited investment in clean water and sanitation and food safety. And that same lack of health infrastructure sort of can allow for crosstalk between human and animal resistance. So you can have antibiotic resistant bacteria kind of being selected for in humans, but also selected for in animals. Mm-hmm. And you have a lot more opportunities for exchange between humans and animals than you do in the United States, for example. Yeah. I see. So, yeah, so there's a really big, um, really big risk of problems increasing over time in a lot of these countries. So in general, um, what do you think are some measures that people should be taking to kind of help mitigate this problem? From the perspective of an everyday person, um, education is, I think, can go a really long way. So, you know, there, and and there was like, there was recently a report by the Wellcome Trust called Reframing Resistance, um, that where they basically, they, 
they talk about the fact that, you know, antibiotic resistance is this major public health crisis. Um, we keep talking about 10 million dead per year by 2050 if we do nothing and talk about these big, scary numbers. But to think about how we can talk about antibiotic resistance in a way that people can understand, oh, this is something that can actually affect me. And there's something that I can actually do to potentially help this crisis. So stressing that, you know, bacteria develop resistance, not people. Um, but as a result, only bacteria are going to respond to antibiotics. So, you know, don't take and don't demand antibiotics if you have the flu or a cold. Think of antibiotics as a, as a Band-Aid and recognize them as being like an important, potentially limited resource. Think about prevention. It's the same kind of public health messages. Maybe we're getting a lot as a result of coronavirus, but you know, think about like hygiene and washing your hands, those sorts of measures. Um, for STDs, I mean, there's a lot of preventative things. I mean, condom use. Think about prevention as uh, and not uh, antibiotic use as a Band-Aid. Right, right. It should be seen more as a last resort as opposed to how we yes. deal with infections. Like the first line of dealing with an infection should be trying to change the way we we do things day to day um, to minimize right. the risk of getting one. So, yeah, so that's really important. Do you have any sort of um, additional takeaway points for our listeners or anything that you'd like to tell us, even like fun facts <laughs> about yourself or <laughs> and it could, it could be anything. Um, <laughs> well, I guess I have been thinking a lot about how, antibiotic resistance relates to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, coronaviruses, you know, originally came from bats, but like a lot of emerging infectious diseases, um, there we are assuming that there were some sort of intermediate hosts and before it jumped to humans. And so most emerging infectious diseases like coronavirus, SARS, MERS, Ebola, they, 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 they're animal in origin. They're zoonotic, as we as we call them. Mm -hmm. And there are kind of hot spots for disease emergence in places where there's a mm -hmm. lot of kind of co-mingling of humans and animals um, as a result of climate change, deforestation, intensification, intensification of livestock. And so, you know, we we think about these things when we think about coronavirus, and we realize that there are certain practices that humans do that really that really put us at risk for um, diseases that come from animals th to which we have no immunity. So it's the same intersection of human and animal health that are contributing to potentially contributing to global antibiotic resistance like, uh, of thinking about things like these are not disconnected issues. I feel that's kind of where public health should be going is looking at the roots of problems rather than downstream specifics. I mean, there's almost, I feel like public health in general can be boiled down to very few things that, you know, animal agriculture is the source of almost every infectious disease problem we have right now on some level. Then there is, you know, issues with poverty and other reasons. So there's a very, it, it's interesting how, how simple it is to boil down a lot of mm -hmm. the problems we're facing today. So I don't know if you have heard of this concept of one health 
before, human health, environmental health, and animal health are all inextricably linked. Kind of realizing that, you know, unless we approach it from all of these different perspectives and have veterinarians working with medical doctors, working with environmental specialists, we're never going to really address the root of many issues, including AMR, but, you know, many, many diseases that are out there. And it seems really obvious, you know, but this is a really, it's an active effort on the part of a lot of organizations and universities. And so like Tufts, for example, I think is one of these unique universities that has a medical school and also has a veterinary school. And so we have an opportunity to have crosstalk between these disciplines because that opportunity actually does not exist. If you go to medical school, you learn about human diseases and how to treat them in humans. And if you go to veterinary school, you learn about animal diseases and how to treat them in animals. But there's no, there's no, you know, looking at the bigger picture problem that would involve or require the perspective of both medical doctors and veterinarians. And that's a major problem because it lets, it kind of lets things foment, if that's the right word, Mm -hmm. to this point. Yeah, I mean, I think in general in medicine, there's a tendency now towards more interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary focuses, even like within the hospital setting, that's sort of like the new gold standard is for specialists of different kinds to collaborate Mm -hmm. and cross-collaborate more. It's actually one thing that makes me um, pretty hopeful about AMR is, so in terms Mm -hmm. of what's being done globally to combat AMR, kind of after this report I was talking about, that UK report was released, people got really concerned, as I was mentioning. And so the World Health Organization, the Food Agriculture Organization, and OIE, which deals with animal health, they kind of got together and they were like, look, we're going to have to address AMR and we have to do it from a One Health perspective. And so they have been helping um, countries, including Cambodia, where I did research, but you know, other countries in Africa and Southeast Asia, um, help them develop these national antibiotic resistance action plans. And they have specifically required that stakeholders from the human health side, animal health side, um, farmers, industry, as many stakeholders as possible are kind of all together to come up with this plan for mm-hmm. how this country, each country is going to address AMR. Those plans have to be implemented now, which is a whole nother step. But I think the idea of bringing everyone together from the very beginning was just a really, it was a really smart way to go about that. So that makes me hopeful. Yeah. And sort of along the lines of of what you were saying with One Health and even with COVID, I mean, we live in a very, very connected world. So what's happening here, what's happening in other country, I mean, with globalization and air travel, it matters. Maybe something is emerging in another part of the world, but we all have a global responsibility to make sure that doesn't happen because in the end, it's going to affect us all. So (laughs) these global organizations are coming together. There's a lot of funding from wealthier countries. And I think that was actually one of the conclusions of this UK report is, listen, you know, wealthier countries, it's actually going to save you money if you put up money, if you put money up front now to solve AMR. Um, because otherwise you're going to be just as affected as everybody else. So think about, try to think about it proactively. And I think that's what, you know, kicked this all into high gear. Right. It's like, it's, the AMR report was yeah. shared by economists because those that, are the numbers that, that spoke to everybody, unfortunately. 
unfortunately, yeah. I mean, it should be that we live in a world that that just cares about global health for its own sake. But I mean, for people and you know, corporations and anything that's more money driven, it seems like. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, this has been a great conversation. I really learned a lot. And um, as a fellow infectious disease <laughs> nerd, I could talk about this all day. But um, I um, really enjoyed talking to you. And of course, we've known each other for a long time. So it's also been really interesting <laughs> to me that our careers kind of converged yeah, in like randomly, sort of a similar direction. <laughs> pretty randomly, exactly. So thank you for the conversation and thank you for, for being a guest me. on Case Confirmed. Thank you.